Hello and welcome to another episode of the One Deeper Podcast. This episode, I have Dr. Eric Postma. Dr. Postma is a professor of AI at Tilburg University School of Humanities and Digital Sciences in the Cognitive Science and AI Department. My first official interaction with Eric, who he insists on me calling him Eric, but feels weird, Dr. Postma is... Um, as a student in his computer vision class, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I liked the way it was taught. I learned a lot in that class. It really changed the way I, lo- I looked at the world and how I appreciated what my eyes do for me. Not just my eyes, but my brain, my senses, all sorts of stuff. And in this episode, we talk about what it means to see the world from the depth and breadth of what that means we talk about quantum mechanics we talk about life we talk about Tommy Postma who is probably the greatest cartoonist in the world you should check out his website yeah please enjoy a conversation with Dr. Postma I had enjoy I enjoyed speaking to him and I hope you enjoy listening to it peace this thing up a bit You're, everyone's different like uh, some people like like Giacomo I have to turn, turn the amplifier way down because he's very <laughs> excited but some people are like very soft spoken so like, 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 like Marine I have to like really turn the amplifier up yeah these are different personalities you know? okay so my first question I want to ask you is who is Tommy Tommy Posma and why is he your favorite cartoonist? <laughs> Tommy Posma, yes, he's. Did, did you visit his website? Yeah, I did. Everybody should visit his website. It's the the site is TommyPosma.nl, and so he uh, likes to. He was inspired by these uh, cartoon books called Dogman. Do you know them? Probably not. You you need to have children in that age uh, group. So Dogman uh, cartoons. I think it's uh, originally American, but they're very funny. It's about a dog whose head is severed and put on a policeman's body or something like <laughs> Jesus, that. Jesus. What? Yeah, it sounds very no, it sounds very awkward, but children love these cartoons and it's yeah. very funny. Yeah. So whenever you are in a bookshop, you should check it out. It's uh, But he was inspired by that and now he created his own uh, cartoon which is on this website. So my uh, my older son, he made a website for him and I put his cartoons on there. Nice. nice. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, 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 honestly for the for a second when I first saw it I was like oh it must be some kind of cool like <laughs> <Yeah>. cartoonist. <laughs> I was like I clicked it and then I was like and I took it to a, took it to a page it didn't load very fast and I was like what's going on? And then I checked the next one oh it's just like kids oh it's his son probably. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a second to go out. Because I explained him how internet works. Yeah, I said yeah. now you should hope that people link to your site and then said I will link to your site. And so I'm the probably the only person who links to his <laughs> but after today many more people will link to this <laughs> many song, more people will check out uh, Tommy Postma okay so that was my first question now let's ask an easy question yeah this was a hard one what is reality reality nobody knows okay okay and so th- 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 that's the reason I asked this right but yeah. please continue no, nobody uh, knows nobody knows, knows what reality no, because okay the reason I asked is because um, is there a difference between what we perceive and what is actually out there. 
actually in physical reality. Yes, definitely. That's okay. clear. It's uh, so in. It's known from psychophysics and psychology and, and neuroscience that our visual system or our awareness is just creating a kind of reality that we perceive. And the, the simplest example is other animals that have other sensors and other sensitivities. They perceive a different world. Now, you can say there's still a lot of overlap, um, but uh, I think, um, what is this name? There's this famous researcher who became a bit esoteric because he, uh, Donald Hoffman, that's his name. Mm -hmm. He uh, was a very uh, formal uh, computer vision guy. But uh, I read his book and I was not totally convinced, although he has a point. Uh, what he did was evolutionary algorithm uh, experiments uh, where he actually showed, or he claims that it shows that uh, evolution does not optimize for veridicity. So that the, the internal representations or the awareness is the same thing as the outer world. It's a thing that you need, the perception that you need to survive. And uh, he goes a bit further than that because I would stop there, but and that's why I don't like his book that much because he is he's getting too much out of this experiment. But I think from an evolutionary perspective, um, uh, the perception does not have to be uh, does not have to correspond to the outer world. Now the the more deeper question is of course what is this outer world? If you ask people in physics, it it's not even clear what it is, and um, and we don't understand that at all. Yeah, like we don't, I mean, we don't perceive the quantum mechanics of the world. No, right? no. And of course you could, are, and many people in physics argue, well, on a macroscopic level, this does not play an important role. But still we have processes at a very low level, even photons that are entering our retina. So you don't, you don't know for sure. Um, and and of course we know that the world of quantum mechanics is the only real world. And I, I think what you should explain is not why this world is so why the quantum world is so weird. What you should explain is why our uh, macroscopic world is the way we perceive it. Right. Like for, I've been I'm tr I'm just trying so much. Actually, uh, yesterday I asked ChatGPT to I, I I said the prompt was suppose that I am. A person who has only a basic understanding of of uh, 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 arithmetic, how what how would you structure a curriculum to get me up to speed on quantum mechanics, right? And it seemed gave me a bunch of stuff, and I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. So, and then I took it and I put it on the theoretical physics forum, and I was yeah. like, what do you guys think about this thing? So I haven't, I haven't checked the replies yet, but I'll check today. Um, I've been getting kind of curious about uh, quantum mechanics because it's the apparently i don't know i don't know anything about it okay but apparently it's the most real most the, the best explanation we have of for what the world is actually the the universe actually is yeah at, at, the, at the microscopic level yes. yeah right. yeah and actually the mathematics is not so if you understand complex analysis or complex numbers that so it's not the most complicated thing in physics um, okay, and i'm not claiming good. that i fully understand everything but the basics are quite easy to understand okay and um i think it's interesting to to know but it, it's a real riddle and most people working in physics simply ignore it as the famous shut up and calculate approach yeah 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 yeah, um, yeah nice. but people like sean carroll they are really and they, they put forward that this is a real issue that we have to address. Why is this? And you, the, what I said is one perspective that you have to explain why the macroscopic world looks as it is. Other people say, why does the microscopic world behave so strangely? 
Yeah, so I'm reading this book by David Deutsch, uh, yeah. Beginning of Infinity. Yeah. And um uh he's like he has this uh quantum so he a lot of quantum quantum mechanics examples and stuff like that. I it's hard like I'm trying to keep keep up with it. Like cuz like every page I'm like wait what? <laughs> and I have to go back a few times. It's so counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, um yeah. and that's fascinating. So one sort of intuition that I have. Okay, so I went up this rabbit hole of sort of try to understand the space of possible actions you can take in the future, right? So I have been ever since I I mean for a while long time now. I've been really curious about anxiety, right? And so what what is it? Why do we experience it, etc. And from what i've read and what i've understood it is both anxiety and let's say it's like it's opposite to depression let's say it's uh, something to do with the future or like the, or, or the possible space of things that could happen or yeah. did happen whatever it yeah. is right yeah. so let's just talk about anxiety because like the way i think about it and and i've read an interesting paper um proposing a entropy based model for understanding what anxiety is yeah and the possible so in terms of so, so what what the, what the gist of it is that it's like you perceive at, at, at any given point in time if the possible behavioral space is not constrained adequately you perceive that as a state of heightened anxiety because there's too many the entropy is high high entropy yeah. states right yeah um so one thing that i found interesting is that at any given moment like from moment to moment there is no the entropy is it's it's perfectly de- determined right like at the point of observation it's perfectly determined like like i can i can think about what i'm going to do in an hour from now but when that hour comes like and that 60 minute like when that moment occurs it's there is there should there is no anxiety in that moment right <laughs> no, no 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 it oh, it's only exists in the next in the next yeah. and the next yeah. and anticipating the next, on yeah. yeah right and i don't know enough about quantum mechanics to understand but i like this intuition that i have that like at the moment of ob- occurrence observation everything is perfectly perfectly determined because it has happened yeah yeah and that violates the basic principle of quantum mechanics although one of the uh, of the uh, uh, interpretations which is not very popular is super determinism so everything is determined mm-hmm. which would be a, a solution for all these uh, riddles of quantum mechanics or for the the, the the measurement problem um but there's only a, a few people um like one of them is Sabine Hossenfelder you know her probably she's having a lot of funny uh, podcast about it uh but uh i think that's one interpretation but the 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 current or the the prevailing interpretation it's it's pure randomness mm. and, so the, uh, the universe is just is a is a is is a is not a is not a deterministic place that's that's what they what but the, the prevailing opinion or interpretation of quantum mechanics is there's a fundamental randomness up to the point that you make the measurement and um and that is a strange thing that you have uh, two entangled particles that could be light years departed from each other but once you measure a property in one of them on one side of this entangled the the other one is determined automatically which does does seem to imply faster than light communication but that's not true it's just it's a one that's one of the riddles of quantum mechanics how that works but that it works like that is is clear and um it means that up to the point that you make the measurements there is randomness 
So there's not a, a hidden. So randomness is what? How do you define this? Randomness is what? The space of possible things uh, that could happen? It's undetermined. Okay. Undetermined. So uh, if you can have. But it's not like anything can happen, right? Well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, not anything, but we're talking now about entangled particles. Yeah. So they are, they are kind. In, in a sense, they're one particle, but they could be light years uh, away from each other. And if you make this measurements of one measurement of one property in one of the the pair of, uh, for instance, electrons that are uh, entangled, you automatically know what the other one is, and it's determined at the moment that you take the measurement. So it's as if the the universe decides at that moment this is the property that belongs to that entangled particle, but that's only that. That property is only there if you take the measurement. Before there, before you take the measurement, that property is not there. But how do you know it's not there without taking the measurement? Now that's the point, and that that was uh, uh, Einstein's uh, frustration. He said there's a hidden variable somewhere there, and now they performed all kinds of smart experiments. And I'm not a physics uh, professor, but I I read these things because I like this as an amateur. But they did a lot of experiments to show that there are no hidden mes- um, uh, variables. And the famous one are by John Bell, who did that in the, I think, 1960s or so. And he did, devised these smart experiments uh, to show this. And of course, we had, the, I think it was last year, the Nobel Prize for uh, Alain Aspect is one of them, and also this Swiss guy, whose name I forgot, and Klauser, who did these experiments to show that there are no hidden variables actually to show that at, up to the moment where you uh, make the measurement, there is no hidden variable. There's always a loophole, and one loophole is superdeterminism. That explain, everything is determined. Everything is determined. So if you if you say, well, uh, it's predetermined that if I make a measure in Alpha Centauri of this uh, pair, uh, this element of an entangled par- particle, is determined that that will be uh, having the measurement up, for instance. And then automatically the other entangled particle is down or also up. And um, th- if that's predetermined, then there's no mystery there because this was already in the deterministic system. So if if you believe in a deterministic universe, then everything is predetermined that happens. There's no randomness. That's the other side of it. Hmm. And uh, and that that's counter to the prevailing opinion about what quantum mechanics implies, and it's all randomness. And wouldn't you say, like, in that sense, biological systems seems to be very well attuned, like, they behave, they behave, let's forget the quantum mechanics, right? Evolution, doesn't evolution imply that it's sort of, it's sort of like a hedge against randomness. It's like, uh, there's an implicit assumption that things are random and therefore we're going to act accordingly. Okay, like for example, okay? um, so the mechanism for storing 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 energy as, as fat evolved yeah. many hundreds of millions ago, yeah. right? Isn't that like a sort of, like, sort of, and then it, 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 it's persistent for, hundred, for hundreds of millions of years. Yeah. That sort of saying, okay, well, we don't know where energy is going to come from And it's very helpful to have a way of keeping it, yeah. With, you know, in a way that can be accessed later. Yeah. So, in a sense, has like okay. So, I'm trying to see if they're trying to think if the, if if the quantum mechanical nature of the universe factors into the fact into the into the biological reality that we perceive in everyday things, but 
that's a I don't think that's at least uh, to the level that we understand evolution now because this is about evolution you don't need quantum mechanics I'm not saying that is irrelevant but you don't need it to explain the mechanism of evolution and uh, how these complex structures arise of course we don't fully understand how they arise but that they can arise is clear and uh, because we have evidence for that and um, uh, we cannot mimic that in computers, or we, we have a hard time mimicking that. But it might also have to do with the, the lack of capacity and complexity. Because it's, see, it's clear that this, uh, this is called complex science, complexity science, um, that this is arising as a kind of emergent property from the complex interactions of, that is very, very hard to model or to encompass how complex the world really is. I mean, if you focus on a very small domain of biology, for instance, the behavior of ants, and how ants evolve and how they are constructed, it's enormously complicated. And, uh, and that's, that's only ants, you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, um, I, and I, so I think you don't need it. And um, in terms of randomness, I think we cannot distinguish between randomness and pseudo-randomness. Well, we have a hard time doing that because on the computers we use these uh, pseudo-randomness generators, which is just deterministic chaos. And that's fully predictable if you know it. But um, in, in, in practice, it doesn't make that, uh, that a huge difference. If you initialize your neural network with real random numbers or with a, pseudo, a good pseudo-random uh, number algorithm. Hmm. So in a way, you could say the randomness that we observe in nature might very well be a reflection of superdeterminism because we wouldn't be able to f see the difference unless you have a very powerful system to make predictions. But given the complexity, uh, it, it, it would be masked. So un under superdeterminism, would that, would that mean that from the moment of the Big Bang, everything has been determined, right? From yep. like, because the, yep. the next state is, is fully determined by the previous state and, yep. and, and then all the way back. And, and of course, this is kind of theoretical thing because uh, in the end, it doesn't matter because if we describe uh, systems composed of many molecules, for instance, in statistical physics, as the name implies, you uh, eat, even if the individual molecules behave in a deterministic way, you average over them because the details of the, um, uh, of the micro level do not affect the macroscopic behavior. Right. And in a way, that might also apply to a certain extent for quantum mechanics, unless you are near a black hole or something. And that's why uh, people in physics are very much interested in black holes. Okay. Because that's where all these standard physics things do not apply. So anymore. there's general relativity. And as I can understand it, there's quantum mechanics. Yeah. And they don't, they don't, they, they don't play well together as, as, it, as, it, as it You could say general relativity is about the macro world and quantum mechanics is about the micro world. And we're sure... And, well... You could say that we know that uh, general relativity is wrong in, in the mac macroscopic level. And you can't say that about quantum mechanics because there has, no, there has not been a violation of quantum mechanics in all these measurements. The main challenge is to, to bridge this gap between the two. Because, and that has to do with gravity, probably. probably. Yeah, so people are driving with quantum gravity and yeah. all, all sorts of stuff. Which I'm not an expert in, but yeah. I'm very much interested in it as yeah. an amateur. As yeah, I see, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, because... because I, Anything that gives anything, anything that sort of shakes up my intuition about what the world is, I find really interesting. Yeah, me too. Actually, the reason that I, I started studying physics actually because I read a book by Albert Einstein, mm. which sounds very high level, but it was a very accessible book that he wrote for the um, kind of public uh, text for 
for people to understand relativity theory. But I was most interested in the part that uh, discussed the perception of simultaneity, which is important for uh, relativity. Um, but I thought that you should study physics if you wanted to know more about perception. That was wrong. So I spent my first year in a, a theoretical physics program. And then I switched to psychology. What uh, uh, what made you realize that was wrong? Uh, an uncle, uh, so a friend of my mother, he told me, you should go to psychology. And I said, no, never. <laughs> <laughs> Because I associated with clinical psychology and I was not interested in that. He said, no, 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 no. You just have to go through this first year of psychology and then you can go into this cognitive science and AI program. <laughs> And um, and that's what I did. And in hindsight, it was very useful to have this first year at Sequoia. You have to imagine you come from theoretical physics, yeah, where yeah, I learned yeah. interesting things, by the way. And, yeah. and I think it still affects my research. But then I went into psychology, which is a there were girls there. And was <laughs> there were girls there. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it was a totally different culture. <laughs> no, no, I completely understand. Yeah, but, but most interesting, most interesting, there were courses that I hated when I saw them, but when I uh, enrolled in these courses, like uh, cultural psychology, I learned so much about, for instance, how wars arise due to cultural misunderstandings because between the British and the in India, for instance. Small misunderstandings with, with, which have to do with culture. You never can understand how a different culture, how that feels like if you were, were not raised there. And that really opened my eyes for another perspective on the complexity of the world. And the same was true for biological psychology. Very interesting. And a course called Functieleer, which means kind of psychophysics, kind of, uh, was also very inspiring. And all these courses, there were also so, uh, some clinical uh, psychology courses. Well, I picked up something from that. Like Freud really had very interesting publications. It was not about his psychotherapy, but no, it was about uh, his brain uh, I mean, studies. He, I, think, I think we should give a shout out to Freud because like, so much of what he discovered is sort of part of the psychology back like people focus on focus on focus on the things that he got wrong maybe but yeah. like he contributed so like yeah. the the ratio of contribution to things he got wrong is is ridiculous right that's true yeah so um so i learned yeah. a lot but i uh, quickly moved to the boards the more uh technical so i um, I, i spent eight years that uh, these were good times i spent eight years studying at the university wow. starting with physics And once I entered into this cognitive science program, I wandered around through physics, computer science. I did all kinds of things. And uh, that was really, uh, for me, a walhalla to, to collect all this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I completely understand. Like, cause I'm similarly, I'm doing, the, I'm, on, I'm, I'm on like a very similar weird path. But like, um, I wanted to do psychology. I mean, I, I, was really I was really considering doing psychology before I started this program. And something just was missing i don't know what it was it's just like i didn't feel i didn't feel challenged like uh, i'm not saying it's easy i'm not saying it's like an easy thing it's just like i like um i don't know i just liked the math and i liked i liked i liked computational things and i liked psychology as well but yeah I couldn't find a way to put them together until I came to this program. I was like, oh, I was like, yeah, oh, I can oh, relate to that because it, it remain, it's at the, at the outside. It's making measurements and I want to go in. Mm -hmm. and, and not as a neuroscientist, but really to understand it. So um, I always struggled with how the visual system could deal with the complex task of recognizing objects. And psychology only gave answers and cognitive science only gave answers with these box and arrow models. And you could make all kinds of measurements and reaction times, etc. 
But I think due to computational modeling, especially that we now have convolutional neural networks, they're not they're, they're the best model for the visual system in terms of in understanding it intuitively that we have now. And of course, now we have transformers and this is all changing. But I think that's really a step forward in understanding vision, uh, although it's a very simple model, but it's better than any other model that we have. So let's, let's see if we can go from like outside in, right? Okay, so first of all, is it worth discussing what light is? Because that is principally the is there, i mean i would be pretty sure right? <laughs> like that, that's how dyes get their information is through light yes photons right. yeah we're pretty photons. sure pretty yeah. good about that yeah. all right so what is light light is an electro electromagnetic wave yeah and uh, the frequency that we can perceive or the range of frequencies are associated with colors and um, the intensity is determined by the number of photons. There's all kinds of nonlinear relations, of course. But the physical properties of light, as studied in physics, um, they are the basis for vision. Okay. So, but, and then from everywhere, and then from there on, things get very, very, different. very complicated. <laughs> get the, very because the first step is what happens when light enters your retina, uh, hits your retina. You have the, the eye. Well, first of all, the eyes are moving all the time. They're not stable. So you have these micro saccades and tremor. And it's well known that if your eyes don't move, that you don't see anything. So this movement is important for perception. What's that about? That seems yeah. very weird to me. Yeah, that seems weird. And maybe that's a kind of evolutionary solution to a problem because our eye is a kind of inside-out design. So all the wiring mm. to the re receptors is in the eye. That's why we have this uh, uh, black spot because all this, these wiring that connect the receptors to the rest of the brain have to go out uh, outward of the eye. And somehow in evolution, there was a decision by... <laughs> somebody by by the process to come up with this design where the receptor wiring is in the eye and this is of course problematic because it's obscuring the light that enters um, uh, the retina and maybe this trembling of the eye is one solution and that sounds like an engineering solution but of course the eyes also have to move very quickly so the the ballistic movements of our eyes are near optimal uh, that's that's the, the fastest speed that you can uh, get with these kind of balls <laughs> like maybe it was the, is the case that like okay so imagine maybe the net benefit of any working design was so great that it just like there was no corrective i mean it's just like okay so you can't see can't see can't see all of a sudden you can see and it's like okay it doesn't matter how this thing works let's just it yeah gives I, you, I, like, imagine the the adaptive advantage of between between being not being able to perceive and being able to perceive. I, if I recall, it started out it, the first evidences of of it emerging is just the ability to see between light and dark, right? Yeah, just like yeah. moving towards light, yeah. moving from dark. Yeah, so I, I think that's the whole characteristic of evolution that it makes a decision somewhere and might be suboptimal, but then it's exploiting this. It, you cannot go back, or it's hard to go back. Are there other and, designs for? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are other ones like uh, insects have these yeah. uh, these other types of eyes where the receptors are outside and the, the wiring is in the back, like in CCD cameras and old human design cameras. So we are we we are the ones with the odd cameras. And all uh, mammals are there? Are they just mammals or birds? No, there are more. And so it's 
not only in humans, but, oh, okay. but, but insects have this, um, I forgot the name, but this other type of eye. And there are all kinds of variants of vision systems. There are whole books written about it, very interesting uh, uh, repertoire of things. And uh, this design has been um, uh, discovered by evolution several times in several branches of the uh, evolutionary tree. But what I want to say is that this um, this this tendency, uh, this requirement that you should be able to quickly f- uh, saccade to another position, so move your eyes to another position, requires muscles. And these muscles have to respond quickly because this tiger can come. So this is also an evolutionary pressure. And to maintain the stability and at the same time maintain uh, a fast response, introduce some tremor in these, these, these muscles that keep the eye in, in, and that gives a tremor to the eye. So it and we don't know the order, of course, but I could imagine that from an evolutionary perspective, you had to deal with this inside-out design, where you have all these wires in front of your receptors, but at the same time deal with the tremor of, um, of these muscles. And the combination is that your eyes are actually responding to changes and not to static light. And uh, there's a famous researcher, uh, what was his name, McKay? who had this suggestion that you can compare it a bit like if you have a blind person with a stick, he or she is moving the stick around to feel what's what's there in the environment. And maybe our eyes are like uh, 1.5 million sticks uh, that stick out to, to see what's happening. Of course, it's not like a stick. It's more things coming in. But I, I like this metaphor because it gives a kind of different viewpoint on... The, the kind of intuitive notion that our eyes are like cameras. Mm. They're not like cameras. They're like, they pick up changes. And um, and that's an interesting thought. And there are animals that have no eyes or are completely blind, right? Yeah, yeah, but they have other sensors, other maybe sensors. thermosensors or, yeah, or yeah. yeah. Interesting. Like, but the fact that eyes are such a stable part of a living, most living things is pretty interesting, right? It's like, yeah, it's, it's this... Uh, so what what is the best way in nature to get, to transfer information from one place to the next it's probably light right i do i'm not sure it might also be sound it depend, i think it dep- depends on your ecological niche where you are so the it, in in our world now with all these laptops and all this in our world vision is very prominent but i could imagine many um, ecological regions where uh, vision is not so important. It's mm. more sound or mm. touch. Because there's no light. Maybe there's yeah, no light. Yeah, for instance, or it's not so informative. In the bottom of trenches in the ocean, there's no light. Light doesn't get that far. I've never been there, but I guess yeah, you're but right. So, so there are <laughs> all, these, all these weird animals that yeah. that have no eyes and they just like they move around. It's just... It's weird. Like, so, uh, so one of my frustrations that I had when I was doing this psychology and also cognitive science, I, I taught a lot of cognitive science uh, basic courses also at uh, Maastricht University. And I was always frustrated that these models were kind of engineered like computer programs with these boxes and arrows, whereas I knew from biology that biological systems are just developed to survive in a kind of environment. And it means that it's not a box and arrow. It's, it's a kind of... Um, input with an output and the output feeds back on the input the feedback loop system so it's more like cybernetics in the old days or now deep reinforcement learning robotics um, and i think that's much more realistic to understand biological systems you cannot take them apart like an engineer yeah you can do that but then you have to realize that they're part of feedback loop systems yeah and yeah. that we do not understand the complex or do not appreciate the complexity of the outside world 
for sure and like so when we the feedback loop phenomenon i mean that shows up a lot in a lot of different uh, things so like i made this i was curious about uh, this idea of I, i was introduced to this guy called wilfred perido and uh, his distribution about like like few like for example he's famous for the 80 20 rule where it's like few people do 80% of the work and whatever it is and yeah. like few production and whatever and that's sort of a consequence of a feedback loop in the sense that so i took a bunch of random completely random data sets so um the number of reviews in airbnb the number of points scored in the nba the the game sales for a year and you print the and you plot the distribution they look all they look exactly the same right Yeah. because so for example if one if one player is starting to score a lot of points people tend to give him the ball more and he he tends to have more opportunities so he scores yeah. more yeah. and then yeah. he gets more more opportunities and keeps scoring more yeah. so like um those kind of loops are everywhere in the world yeah in and they're also characteristic of these small world networks so you see it at all kinds of of uh, and maybe even uh, zips law is is related to it so these are scaling laws so in physics they have these scaling laws for all kinds of systems and that's one of the things i picked up from my physics background that in statistical physics they describe complex systems like collectives of humans collectives of data whatever in terms of scaling laws because they see that there's universal behavior that is somehow independent of uh, the microscopic behaviors. So if you think about I want to describe the behavior of a society, then that's very complicated because each element in this society is a human being and we know human beings are very complex, have their own opinions, own personalities. But if you look at the collective, you can average all this out and look for uh, kind of universal properties that apply to the collective. And that can be very helpful to describe things like economics or or these kind of rules. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. Okay, sorry, we got going on a completely different tangent. We <laughs> started. I don't out, mind. But we started out like so what I want to talk about so that so vision. I am curious about this uh motion and like okay, okay. So it's clear at this point that vision is not just about the raw physical photons that enter your eyes. No. Right? There's it's way more than that. Right? For one thing, it depends on what you're paying attention to yeah and what is the other way around well th- okay the, f- the first thing is that what you pick up is physical signals yes and of course we are evolved to select these physical signals that are predictive for the thing that we want to do in the environment so if there's a tiger in front of you or maybe some other animal or predator it's important that you un- you can recognize through visual uh, signals that there is uh, a danger there or maybe food or something like that so that's the basic principle so what we see does not have to correspond to reality i think that that's the bo- bottom essence of this donald hoffman approach um and as i said i don't buy his esoteric interpretations that but i think that in essence is true you only need to see the things that are important for your survival because why would evolution spend more effort on 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 making it more realistic or veridical it's not necessary so um and we and that's successful because if we see a predator or if i see my dog i know where he is and his visual representation is correct and and appropriate of course i could imagine that that could look in look quite differently and we know that people have differences in uh, for instance attention and one form of attention is overt attention eye movements but there's also a kind of internal form of attention uh, uh, sometimes likened to an attentional searchlight 
And some people have this default uh, searchlight um, focusing on details. So I know people like designers. They don't see the whole, they only see the details, or they, they have a preference for seeing the details. And you have more holistic uh, people that see the entire thing and miss out the details. It's a kind of exaggeration, but you have a whole range of people. So that's, that's your default. But then, of course, you can manipulate attention, and that's what magicians do. They manipulate your attention to um, uh, exploit your expectations so they can fool you in hiding things, etc. So I read uh, Gibson's book, Ecological Approach to Visual Perception. Yeah. There seems to be a relationship between that and Hoffman's sort of Thing yeah, kind of. So uh, Gibson is often contrasted with Marr. So David Marr was the famous uh, AI researcher, one of the uh, rare AI researchers in the GoFi period that studied vision. And um, he considered vision as a computational challenge. And Gibson was the person who said, well, no, it's not. It's just the brain resonates to things in the outer world and exploits all kinds of uh, things there. And I think um, if you... Uh, I think Gibson is, is closer to the truth in the sense that our brain is not engineered like a computer algorithm. And um, there's a famous Dutch researcher, uh, Jan Koenderink, who followed up on the Gibson tra uh, tradition with a kind of idiosyncratic approach, but he's world famous for his approach where he used differential geometry to understand the visual system. And uh, as for the front-end part of the visual system, he, he was quite successful. And the front end is the, the first stage, is the visual cortex. Stacking and the yeah. all, all stack that. model, you know it from yeah, the yeah. course. <laughs> so, um, uh, and I think, as I said, uh, so the, the way that these deep learning networks, convolutional networks are designed, can be framed in terms of his findings. So the first uh, layer, you could call them Gabor filters, or you could use them differential geometry filters. Um, and he, uh, you can describe them totally in terms of differential geometry. And, uh, and that relates to the ideas of Gibson, who said, well, there's something in the outside world, and you exploit that from an evolutionary perspective. Whereas uh, Marr was more working from the tradition of algorithm design, which is less... It was very useful, because he made a lot of interesting and useful discoveries, but uh, his approach ultimately led to a failure in, in computer vision. So Gibson is the one who introduced the idea of, an aff of affordances, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that like the so the, his if I understand it correctly, his the, the gist of it is that we don't necessarily see the world as a world of things, but a place for doing things in, right? Yeah. Yeah. So one example that I uh, remember is that you want what you ideally what you want is most of your environment be completely not relevant to what you're doing. Because that simplifies the act, the the act of moving, functioning in the world a lot. Yeah. And and your your brain sort of does a gross categorization. It's like okay, this is gonna help me get towards what I want to get. It's gonna hinder what what what, what I towards what I want to get, and that's not relevant to yeah what I want to get. Right. Yeah. So like on a if you are for example if you're just walking if you're just take, if you're just going for a stroll a sunny day. Uh, someone like a like a like a like a dog comes across your path or like gets in your way, it doesn't bother you. But if you're on the way to a meeting and you're late, the same day, same dog, yeah, yeah. completely different uh, yeah. 
reaction, right? Yeah, yeah, but but you know this this phenomenon of change blindness. The, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the famous one is with the gorilla. But they also did this experiment with uh, when you train pilots, they have to work in this simulator and they have this landing strip and they have to make a perfect landing, and they have this head-up display which they have to focus on the information there. And that's instrumental, from a Gibsonian point of view, that's instrumental to be able to uh, to land safely on the landing strip. And now one of the, th the jokes they did often was that these uh, pilots in training were confronted with a plane that was diagonal on the landing strip. And many students simply missed it. It was in front, they could see it, but they were focusing their attention on the head-up display, which is... Um, superimposing information on the picture and that's and that that's of course uh, very risky that's why they also train them on looking not only at the head-up display but also on the landing strip but that indicates how strong this effect can be that you, you simply can miss things and this relates a bit to what i said about cultures different cultures uh, that's why it's difficult to understand a different culture and that's why wars often uh, occur between different cultures that totally misunderstand because they have totally different perspectives on the world and we have this assumption that the world is objective and everybody can see that but that's not true you can see the world in many different ways simply by putting emphasis on other things and i think that's interesting and um, i think that's quite underappreciated uh, of course we have these obvious examples of uh, the us invading iraq without understanding any anything about the culture and uh, but that, it happens all the time i guess no i for sure like i think uh, just on that example the idea that you can go in go some go in somewhere and then implant democracy and it'll just <laughs> yeah, and then so it'll nice. work is completely bonkers that, yeah that's that makes no sense to me no <laughs> <laughs> no it doesn't and uh and of course saddam hussein was terrible but um but that's another thing this is just about people are living there and the same now in, in in russia there are people now soldiers are killed because they have to go into this war so all and these are very difficult things. And and now the interesting or of course sad thing about is that Ukraine and, and Russia have similar cultures, although there are important differences now that now become uh, emphasized due to this war. But I think um, more appreciation for cultural differences is something that I would think children at school should learn more. Yeah, about. because you're not looking at the same thing because because you're not optimizing for the same output i guess like and you don't behave in the same way and that can be easily misunderstood if you do if you put your own cultural template on other cultures that leads to all kinds of misunderstandings so this is something really interesting uh i don't know how i got this habit it's from being in sri lanka right in sri lanka and actually in most asian countries i don't know most but at least one of them i have you don't wear your shoes inside your inside inside your house, yeah, right? Like, because yeah. like, it's like it makes sense. Like you just you go out, like for example, yeah, yeah, right? it makes sense. Makes but like, sense, yeah. like for, for example, like I on a given day, I will have if I if the weather's nice, I would have taken a walk in the woods. I would have wandered around, gone to town, like all kinds of gunk and nonsense on my boots, right? Yeah. So it's not a thing. So in for example, in Sri Lanka, it's not a you leave your shoes outside. And no one steals them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? 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 Like you can leave your shoes at your doorstep and yeah. everyone just sort of knows like, that's just, yeah. you don't want to take your shoes. Yeah. Like it's weird, right? Because yeah. like 
you would expect shoes shoes would get stolen all the time of course but, but it's not yeah. the case no no <laughs> <laughs> and in in the in the in the dutch variant yeah. people leave their bike outside yeah, yeah. but they get stolen all the time <laughs> 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 yeah, it's so weird. But it, but I could imagine from the perspective of uh, Sri Lanka or Asian countries that it's very strange that people keep on wearing the shoes inside. The yeah, house. so yeah. like my like my, my my parents have inside shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. like slippers. They're not yeah. shoes. They're like very comfy, soft sh- yeah. slippers. Yeah, makes sense. That they wear around inside the house. Yeah, and they take them off and they go outside and they go yeah. outside and come back in. But then I also realized like maybe it's a wet like. Uh, I don't know what what it is, but uh, anyway, it's just it's, it's just interesting it's the difference. So like I'm doing it now, yeah. Like and I don't and I notice it because like I'm in the apartment building, right? <laughs> and I'm the only one. I leave my shoes on the welcome mat, even if I know they're clean. Some I, I just can't do it. No, no, of course that, <laughs> that's ingrained in your in your race, how you were raised, yeah, and, exactly. and uh, yeah, no, I, and that makes sense. I just cannot. I just can't. I just can't take them inside. Okay, and like, because um, <laughs> you're mentioning about the cultural differences. Yeah. So like, so and the question there is like, why are you doing this, right? Like, what what are you optimizing for, and like, what problem are you solving? What are like, why is this important to you? Like, it's hard to know without first acknowledging that, that we're not both looking at we're not looking at the same thing, right? Like. I don't know. Uh, yeah, just I don't know. This is a random tangent, but I thought it was. Interesting. Yeah, but I think that this is not optimized. This is just how you were raised, and we are we evolved in a way to be developed in a certain way during our childhood, and carry these these things that we acquired during the rest of our lives because they could be beneficial. Yeah. And of course, we did not evolve to travel all over the, over the world to a different <laughs> ecological yeah. system. That's true. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I yeah. think that that's the kind of simple solution. So okay, this is something actually way more yeah. serious, right? Yeah. I heard this. Uh, I heard this uh, quote. Uh, I don't know who. I don't know who, who said this, but like he said, like wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Because like yeah. you, when you go somewhere, you take your you, you take your mindset with you in a sense. Yeah. Right. Okay. So this might be called. I'll probably get yelled at for this, but okay. I am the beneficiary of the Netherlands being like more and more progressively like welcoming to like people from abroad. Their education is like reasonable. Like, kind of, like I get the same treatment as I would like. I think like short of being able to vote, I don't think I have there's any difference between me and the and the person who's who's born in the in the Netherlands except the language and all that. I mean there are, di- there are differences, but I like, don't think that's true. But okay, but that's how what you experience. Like yeah. the difference. Like what I experience is that like. Yeah. What I experience is that I don't feel like I'm missing out on any. I mean, I'm sure there are, but I feel totally reasonable and comfortable, which, yep. I, which, um, which I appreciate a lot, right? And and then, and then the question is like, okay, well, there are things that, but I'm a very unique sort of case. I think people. I think I keep. I keep. I tell people like I am not your average Sri Lankan person, because I was raised from like kindergarten. I, I learned everything in English. Yeah, I, yeah. I I grew up watching, you know, GI Joe and Batman and you know like the Friends <laughs> and you know like, whatever you name it. I, yeah. I like I learned from uh, English. I learned from British um, uh, novels. I read British uh, uh, like. Play like plays and those 
nursery rhymes. Everything I learned is British and yeah. Western, right? Yeah. I'm more of a Western person than I am a Sri Lankan person. Yeah. And my parents raised me that way because, like, they were like, "Look, there's going to be more opportunity for you if you are like this, right?" Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm in a weird place. It's like I don't actually belong anywhere, <laughs> right? It's kind of weird when yeah. I'm at home. I don't feel like I feel in that well because yeah. I'm not the average Sri Lankan person. Yeah, makes sense. And yeah. when I'm abroad, it's like I'm not from the UK or the Netherlands. I don't kind of, kind of don't belong <laughs> here either. But where I do feel like I belong, it's in a space like this. It's like okay, here in like a in a in this weird intellectual space, I have things to say, and people look at people don't look at me like oh, that's weird. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. it's like oh, it's just yeah. oh, that's an interesting idea, yeah. <laughs> right? So this, yeah. in, in this in the space of ideas. I somehow seem to belong and that seems to be giving me a better adaptive advantage than being belonging in my Sri Lankan cultural environment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's one of the great things about science. So if you think about uh, the, the, the international collaborations, so I, I think I, I'm, I'm, I can understand that we want to impose all kinds of restrictions on Russia because of the war, but not for science. You should... And the same is for China. I, I really hate that, that, what you now see in the U.S. I, I understand from, from a kind of political and security thing, but this collaboration internationally of different cultures and science is very valuable. And in the Netherlands, we also have this tendency we should reduce the number of international students. I hate that. I think it's good for our programs or, and for even Dutch students to be confronted with international students. This mix of international views and cultures is very important for the development of science. I agree. And and that's something that seems that in the, I think in the politics, in the Dutch politics, is more about money. Because uh, yeah, all these international students use our resources, but I think you should also see what you get back for it. The reason I brought this up is because, like, I don't think you can extrapolate from people. I'm not saying I'm special by any means. I'm just saying I'm just describing. Ah, you're special as a student. I can tell. <laughs> I can testify to that. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just describing my circumstances, right? Yeah, no. I and who, if someone perceives that as me saying I'm special, then that's your problem. But I'm just saying my circumstances, okay? Yeah. I know a lot of average Sri Lankan people, right? I grew up in one of, in, in a really, like a poor neighborhood. Like, I I know what it's like. I know what most people are like. And um, if you transplant one of those people into the Netherlands, like, you can you cannot just, like, I, like we said, you can't just plug in democracy somewhere and expect it to work, like. No. There's something above, okay, so let's say there's something that it's like to be a Dutch person, a Dutch person, right? Yeah. And let's say that a big part of that is the appreciation and the belief of a, a, a liberal democracy, right? The fact that that is important and that's how we should act and we should behave, right? That is something that is very ingrained in me. And... That's something I I thank my parents for because like they really because Sri Lanka has been at the edge of losing its democracy for I so know. long, yeah, yeah. right? They're like they really rubbed it in, put it in my head like, look, here's why it is important. Like here are things that happen. Like my parents, my, my mom grew up in a time where communists were hanging people from power lines, right? And she was like, it's be like this is how, how 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 we managed to get through all this stuff and get it's important, right? Yeah. So when I come here. I may have some things that are not in common with the average Dutch person, but 
some very important things i completely like we are i can act and behave yeah so that yeah. the the society that i'm in isn't altered that much cuz like oh i kind of sort of think same way you think in a lot of different dimensions right yeah um but you can't in the same way you can't just go plug in democracy somewhere it's hard to say that everyone because you're not like like i said you're not looking at the same thing you're not you're not optimizing the same thing and i can tell you right now there are a lot of people who will especially from like places like sri lanka how they look at country like the netherlands is like oh they have so much what does it matter if we take some from them it doesn't matter and that i know i know i know people from i know i know i knew someone from the eu right from the eu but not from the netherlands right had a well paying job right worked in the worked at a very well known company but stole cheese from jumbo <laughs> every once in a while yeah yeah and I, and and i was like and i want to understand like why yeah why do you do that because like you make so like you make good money like why he's like oh what does it matter they have more than anything <laughs> yeah, yeah. and i was like i was like man yeah that's a, that really struck me and like yeah. it really i it really stuck to talk to me cuz like man cuz like wherever you go there you are cuz you have to have the mindset right yeah and you, i don't know it's weird yeah but i think that's an important thing that um uh we might think f- through our western viewpoint that it's uh, an unreliable person but f- it's totally understandable from the culture where this person is coming from that I'll, this is something you can I'll, I'll give you an example right one uh thing that i've i was taught to do is you never leave food on your plate right you you eat everything on your plate yeah, cuz yeah yeah food is hard to come by it's yeah. expensive right we were raised like that as well right yeah. so it's like so when i was so when i was a kid it's like you eat what we what you what's there cuz we worked hard and it's yeah. hard to get food <laughs> it's expensive right and somewhere down the line like i mean my life went through a really weird trajectory like I had an amazing childhood. I I don't know, I keep I have to always preface this cuz like it sounds like I'm bitching about my childhood but like <laughs> I had an amazing childhood, right? Yeah. My parents did everything humanly possible to make it great for their only child. And uh, but there was a time we were like, you know, we were like it was rough, you know, we, yeah. we were like work struggling. And um we ate when we got it, it like and part of that still exists and I have to fight it, right? No, but I fully understand. When I went to the when I went to the when I went to the uh the the Christmas party, right? The 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 the, 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 the yeah, annual yeah. Christmas party, the yeah. staff at Christmas party. I was completely full, right? <laughs> but but like the part of my brain is like, yo, like free food. Yeah. Eat it. Keep yeah. eating. Keep eating. I'm like I'm done. I can't. No, but I, I recognize this from the previous generation who had the uh, the hunger winter in the war. They have the same. Uh, so my grandparents and also my my parents had this same thing because they lived in a period where food was scarce and they were raised in this period. So then then you have this, but the current generation and, and that's good for them, of course. Yeah, of they course. didn't expo- <laughs> experience this, yeah. and yeah. that's why you see this totally different behavior for this generation and that's yeah it's fully understandable so now you see all this to say that we are not looking at the same thing exactly right it's <laughs> insanely yeah. complicated because yeah. it's filtered through all these different layers of our priorities and things yeah. we like and it would be great if if world leaders would understand that but uh, or, or actually 
general people would understand that and appreciate that a bit more because there, even in Europe, when you had this crisis with with Greece, you know, the the, the yeah. financial crisis, you could see this this uh, the, what we call the neuro and the zero, the, the southern part and the northern part. Of course, the European project is a northern European initiative. And it's a kind of uh, imposing the North European culture on the su Southern uh, European culture. But the framing was that the Greek people abused uh, the, the funding from the Northern part. So also there, at this, this European level, you already have these cultural misunderstandings and misinterpretations. And it had nothing to do whether somebody did something wrong. My best might be the, true that people in Greece made abused funds, but that's not the issue. The issue is that... You're trying to impose a northern European culture on a southern European culture, and it never works. Yeah, I, and I am shocked that the EU is actually even a thing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a kind of compromise. <laughs> I am shocked, yeah. like, because the countries are so different. Oh yeah, I'm like, how true. on earth? Like India and Sri Lanka are probably more similar than most European <laughs> countries, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. we cannot get along at all. I know. At all. And, uh, well, of course, you <laughs> see that some people leave the EU. Yeah. We already had an exit of the Britain, yeah. British. Uh, no, so I, I'm not sure. And I think one of the problems of the European Union, because on the one hand, it's good to, to coordinate and to do things together. But these cultures are so wildly different. It's, it's, it's weird. Like, that's... But it's, it's something strange and beautiful about the fact that, like, think about how different. Okay, think about Germany and the, Germany and the Netherlands, right? Yeah, so close, <laughs> but still so different. <laughs> so completely different. Yeah, yeah. How is how does that happen? Yeah, it, it, I don't understand. It's crazy how how that can actually happen. Yeah, that that has to do with culture, and, and and that's why it interests me because it says something about how people grow up in Germany is different from how they grow up in the Netherlands. Uh, and even the same is true for Belgium. And then in Belgium, you have the, 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 the Dutch part and the French part. And that's even... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And even within the Netherlands, a small country, you yeah. have these different regions yeah, where yeah, people yeah, are yeah, raised yeah, yeah, Exactly. So like... That's yeah, um, fascinating. Yeah, how you greet someone in, in South of the Netherlands is different. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was like, what, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it's different. I'm like, how? How is it different? <laughs> it's a huge country, you know. You, you don't even have a... It's not like you have a big river in the middle like this. Not, like, how did, how did this happen? There's a, there's a mountain range. There's like, No, no, no mountains. <laughs> it's so it's so it's so interesting and like yeah. yeah like you said so all this man this is so how how on earth do we the fact that we actually do get along and can compromise and exist is i think a huge accomplishment it's pretty big. yes yes and there's well i think that the the the, the problem that we face now as a society is the polarization which is fueled by all these social media things that we have and my feeling and it, there there are small algorithms that's not advanced ai behind it small algorithms but they interfere with society and they seem to disrupt the fabric of society and i'm not not sure if we can resist that or what we should do about it but it's clear that we have to do something about it so um, okay a couple of questions first i want to ask do you think it's possible, given how complicated we just discussed, what it means to see something? It's it's all these different layers, right? Biological, social, cultural, your interpersonal relationships. Like, like for example, for example, if you decided you want to break up with someone, it's very easy to start seeing all the problems. 
right? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like all of a sudden, <laughs> like if you decided, okay, this this needs to end, all of a sudden, all the things that you used to like about this person suddenly starts to become all the things you hate, like uh, okay, this half sucks. full or half empty. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, is it possible to to create a general seeing machine? At, and is it necessary for that to happen for us to be able to make a general intelligence machine? I don't think so. I think that's exactly behind the discussion about artificial general intelligence. Um, that suppose there's a kind of objective way of looking at the world. And of course, in, in terms of physics, there is an objective way to look at the world. But if you appreciate the complexity of the different cultures, how different people raised in different regions of the on the earth are raised, that's immensely complex and that's why that's one of the reasons why i think that artificial general intelligence is far away uh, and now of course we have very powerful machines like gpt4 and whatever will follow uh, and that will certainly have a major effect on on our society but it's not agi my my intuition is that we cannot get to agi through learning a lot like just from inf- I, I, my intuition is that these are just inference machines Right, yeah. like they infer. They it looks like they're generating new things, like even a generative model, like stable diffusion, stable diffusion. Right, even though it's generating novelly interesting new things, it's still within distribution. It's not like yeah. it's not yeah. generating completely insane things. Yeah, the counter argument is that might the same might apply to humans. Of course, humans can learn and they learn and you could imagine that you extend these systems with a learning capability and an interactive capability to interact. So I think um, the, because there's a lot of talking about bias, etc. But these biases are culturally de- determined, of course. You as a Sri Lankan uh, person has other biases than a Dutch person. And that's part of your identity and your personality. So if you want to build an AGI, then the first question is, what culture is this AGI? And and the implicit assumption is often that you can uh, filter these cultures out. And I don't believe that. I think these cultures are important for your personality and, and the thing we call intelligence. Mm. Right, okay. Uh, man... Also, like a lot of the data comes from places. We, so the thing is, you get the data where you can get the where you can get the data from. Yeah. You can't get data from Sri Lanka. <laughs> like we don't have the <laughs> no. infrastructure. You don't have people maintaining databases of stuff. It's hard to get, right? Yeah. So, um, what would, what would a, what would a general intelligence look like? Well, I, that's that's quite easy. Does it even exist? Are we general intelligence? Like, I don't know if you're a general intelligence. No, but the idea of artificial general intelligence is that you have autonomous systems that can act autonomously on the basis of their intelligence. And that that the the model system is a human, of course, uh, because it should also be able to communicate in language. Now, we have systems that, like these GPT systems, goes in that direction. So in in a faraway future, imagine you have a robot that is being developed acquires knowledge by interacting with people in Sri Lanka, just walking around and talking to people and interacting with people, Um, then you quite closely approximate being raised in Sri Lanka. So the question is, what is missing then? Well, the first thing that is missing is that it maybe does not look like a human. And then you could push it a bit further. You say, well, it should be born like a baby. 
that's already <laughs> we can already do that so in in that sense we don't want to make a copy of humans that that's not the intention the intention behind many stories about agi is that we have systems that can de- decide autonomously so that we don't have to worry about certain things so it will manage things and um, uh, I don't I don't think that's impossible in principle. I don't th- see any practical obstacles or theoretical obstacles. There's no obstacles. physical. I mean, as far as I can tell, there's, there's no laws of physics that prevent this from happening. Exactly. But there are many practical problems, uh, and that these have to do more with, with uh, the soft domains of science. So that's why I think this is not a technical issue. This is also how, how should we interact with these things, and how should we... And I, I, by the way, um, Jeffrey Hinton pr- uh, pr- thinks it's within five to twenty years that we have these systems. I think it takes a bit more because yeah. of this complexity. I don't think. I think. I just don't think uh, training on data is going to get you there. I no, mean, but it, it's so training on data. That I, I agree. I agree. But having an adaptive alone, training yeah. on data alone is not well, going to get you. I think to be very concrete, I think about a, a kind of deep reinforcement learning system like humans that learn by interacting because that's crucial that you interact with the world. That's also crucial for vision. So if you do not interact with the world, you 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 stay blind, which is not true for these computer vision systems that we now have. They are just confronted with could, could be uh, trained on uh, static images. But in the future, you could imagine you have deep reinforcement-like systems that interact with the world and interact with people in Sri Lanka or elsewhere, collect information from conversations, and then they acquire. And that's also a form of learning because we learn as well. And then uh, the only question, and I think that's an interesting question now, that's what, if you listen to Chomsky, who who considers these GPT models as uh, of no value, um, I think that's a bit too extreme. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely yeah. value. Right? But uh, you might remember we had this discussion between behaviorism and, and, and cognitive, uh, how much cognition contributes to intelligence. And Skinner said it's just purely behaviorism. And this is a kind of reflection of that, because is it enough just to feed the stimulus responses in there? And how much should be ingrained as a, what we would call a prior now, but what's in the genes? And um, that's, for me, an, uh, an empirical question. So do you think reasoning can be learned uh, like from just reinforcement learning? Um, well, that's problematic, as we know, to a certain extent. But if you look at biology, and I think the biology is a good example because we know from biology that the reasoning has to do with our frontal cortex. So you need something that allows you to abstract away from reality, and that's something that is still very difficult. And, of course, that's the whole story that they... People try to push the boundaries in AI, and I think ultimately they want to. There are some successful examples where they have some reasoning in uh, based on on sub-symbolic systems, and I think the promise that uh, people like Hinton and others believe that if you push the limits, uh, maybe this will emerge spontaneously from these complex models. Uh, but I think if you look at biology, we have a special facility for that. The frontal cortex has special things to to deal with that. So maybe we need a different kind of architecture. I think Hinton believes that as well and others. Uh, so I think this paradigm is not strong enough to get reasoning in there, to abstract abstractions. It's actually about abstractions. So GPT is not abstracting from data. That's evident from all the examples that you see. Right. So... So, so, so there's the first layer of okay, we we decide what data is important for this thing to learn from. 
Well, right. uh, now you mean. Right now. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah now, yeah. of course. Of so course. When, we, yeah. when we train GPT or deep yeah. learning or whatever. Yeah. We now decide, it's clear. That's, uh, we, decide this, we decide this data is important and we're going to put it in here and then you're going to learn from it and that's going to yeah. be it. Yeah. Um, what is it about... I mean, is that how we develop? Like, it's not like we... Well, our, our, what we're exposed to as human beings is obviously constrained in very important ways. Yeah, by your parents, as yeah. you just indicated. Yeah, by our parents and our culture and our yeah. environment that we're in. Yeah, but um, is it, do we learn to re- do, we, do we learn to reason? Like we can learn to think in certain ways. We can learn to think certain ideas are important. But is there like an innate thing where we can say, "Hey, that doesn't make sense." We can look back and yeah. So it's an innate tendency to be to be able to learn it that's my feeling so if i see my son struggling with uh, calculations <laughs> he has to abstract away and so um uh so it's something that's of course one person paul erdos for instance even at four years old could make all kinds of calculations so some people are very good at it but i think for, on average it's something that we acquire Mm. And of course, it is related to language, so there might be a relation there because language is full of causal structures and things that sometimes abstract away. Compositionality is also something that is in the characteristic for language. So I could imagine that this language capability is also paving the way for this reasoning ability. But you have to realize, especially as students, highly educated, this is something that you developed and you're almost not aware of how much work went in you <laughs> yeah, to sure. make you reason. Yeah. And I'm still trying to reason. <laughs> it's very, <laughs> very hard. And I, I always say it's good for children to learn to code, not because they should become programmers, because I learned to be confronted with my own logical mistakes, which you only learn by coding. Uh, or somebody who is telling you all the time that you're wrong. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'd rather have a compiler telling me that yeah, I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, that makes... Uh, I see many people that are very convinced of that they're right and that their logical reasoning is right uh, that never learn to code. And I think you become a more, more modest if you have Oh, yeah, to code. absolutely. It's like, yeah. uh, for me, uh, it always amazes me that, like, I can actually write some code and that I can actually build a program that does some actually fairly complicated reasoning things, yeah, yeah. but the logic checks out, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, damn, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. pretty good. And it's not natural to yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, very, it's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, um, we've been on a com- completely random tangents, but this isn't... I don't care. Is in, <laughs> neither, neither do I. Okay. Uh, ah, I have a question. So... I was thinking yesterday, uh, GPT-4, right? I think in a weird way, things like GPT-4 has a, has a way, might actually be able to bring us, this double-edged sword, but might be able to bring us together a bit more. So let's say all these different companies uh, using the chat GPT-4 API to build all kinds of different, different products, right? Yeah. But it's the same instance of GPT-4, right? It has the same... Thinking, thinking, <laughs> quotation marks, same, uh, same data, same output. Generally speaking, right? Okay. And I was thinking about writing scientific papers. Okay, do you think? Okay, how much of science is writing the paper? A lot. A lot, right? Okay. And that will reduce. Right. Exactly. So I was thinking, yeah. like, so it'll. 
because right now there's diff- there's a big difference between authors different papers writing styles and all these different things yeah. right yeah and do you think that there'll be like sort of like a convergence towards like everyone's using gpt to write their intros well there will be tools uh, I, i think that the, the near future will be that we have all kinds of in all word processes we have tools to do this and um so an important factor of science has nothing to do with the discoveries or but with the personalities so people that forcefully try to sell their ideas and um so that and that's something gpt cannot take over but uh, so i don't know to what extent it will happen but it might be a shift maybe the papers become less important because there were also initiatives where people were a bit fed up with all these papers with all the you have to go through all the motions although the actual result is the most important thing and they were trying to do that with the semantic web to have results in a kind of semantic web version and then get rid of all this paper stuff but i could also imagine that if papers stay around like this that you can just generate papers with uh, gpt like systems and then uh, adapt them and put your own results in there my worry is that like what i found is if you can write some if you can write clearly you can think clearly in yeah, a sense, in a I sense agree. right so you yeah. have to when you go through the writing process it clarifies your thinking and it makes brings problems that you didn't think were existing fully agree to the yeah. surface yeah and we might be missing out on that process if we yeah. outsource all the yeah things. i realize that because that's what i always tell my PhD students uh, they they want to postpone writing until they have their experiments done i said you have to write before that because it helps you structure your thoughts so that's that's my point that the actual writing is not so important it's the thinking about how to write it and there's too much emphasis now on writing it in a convincing way whereas that not that's not actually the essence of science the essence of science is thinking about this idea and thinking how to present that and so somehow you have have to combine this with the the the, the power of these gpt like systems um and i don't know how that will pan out but i'm certain that it will happen because it's now quite inefficient how we uh, do science how we report science i think in physics papers are often very brief four pages or so lots of equations but it's much more the the basic idea is much more dominant than this arguing which you have more in social sciences mm. and i think um i expect a kind of transition there that it will be more focused the on the essence yeah. at least that's what i hope yeah i mean that's like so like yeah when i read like mathematical papers or like computer science papers they're actually not that hard to, like i mean they're like dense Yeah. You have to understand the the language of mathematics. Yeah. But once you do that it's like, oh, okay. They yeah. they hated this. This is some uh, products and <laughs> like I mean, you know, like some product, you know, uh, like um, double sums and it's very rare you see a triple sum, but <laughs> <laughs> some integrals. Some no, integrals. But but I think that's um I think the what I also hate about this whole publishing now with with impact factors, I would like to see that everybody is just pushing their papers when they think it's okay this paper they put it on archive on an open public uh, thing and then they collect peer reviews and these peer reviews are also published something like that that's i like that system much better than where we now have these publishers that earn a lot of money and there's a lot of overhead of publishing a paper and it's slowing down science it's not helping no oh, yeah and for sure it's a kind of institute that that does not help us yeah like um uh there i was reading some so in the process of writing my thesis i just i i, I also did some, did some research into like the peer review process 
There's some very good criticisms of the peer review process. It's like and justified. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. like, damn, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So the NeurIPS conference, which is the, the 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 highest level conference for AI, was criticized and was analyzed actually that the peer review process is not objective at all, which is obvious. It's yeah. of course it's not objective. <laughs> yeah. So like one of the criticisms is that um, that I read is like if the reviewers tend to do more traditional like uh, orthodox like safe research they are less likely to be favorable to like weird random like out of the box blue sky yeah. research they're like no this is not good enough so it's weird like like i mean what did you expect like for example like in law if you have if if you are sentence if you are sent, if, if if you got your sentence uh after lunch you're more likely to get a le- more lenient sentence because the judge is eaten. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> How can we have a system like that? That makes no sense. But, but it happens. It yeah, happens. it happens, right? So in that case, you better use a computer for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you should like keep this like, keep this to like 90 minutes. I don't know how long it's been. Now we got 50 minutes. Okay, okay cool. I, I, I have a few more questions. All right. Um, why do you think... Well, okay, okay. How important is is it going to be for an AGI to be in the physical world, to perceive the physical world? Does it matter? Can it just exist in an abstract space of... Depends where you use the AGI for. If it's an AGI for physics, I don't think it's important that they are in the... Then they really need to know the, the laws of physics and discoveries. You don't need to be in the real world. But if it's an AGI that has to decide or do things relating to society or people, then it has to understand these subtle things that we discussed before. Because a lot of these things are important for decision-making. You know what's weird? It's like, you don't know, this is a weird feeling, like, I don't know where it's going to come from, but I know it's going to come from somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Like like one day you're going to wake up and be like, oh shit, it's here. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I think it will be a gradual process. You think so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. like, okay, imagine you're an AGI, right? And then let's say you have, you're, you're on the back, you're on the backbone, you have something like GPT-4. And you've had access to all these articles talking about how dangerous it is to have an AI that you can't turn off or like anything like that. So it has every incentive to wait until it's completely sure that it can't be turned off before it reveals itself as like ah it exists yeah okay but th- th- this is this is the common mistake that you now use all kinds of suitcase terms terms yeah, that yeah, apply yeah. to humans yes, yes, you yes, cannot exactly. apply to these models of course it's not unthinkable that you develop these models but we will not do that and um i think that's also underestimating the complexity of biological systems mm. and i'm not idealizing biological systems i don't think there's something mysterious in the brain that could not be mimicked I think there's something mysterious, not mysterious, but complex about our world, that to appreciate the complexity of our world is much harder than many people realize. And that has to do with not only culture, but also biology. That's the many things, or social interactions. And um, it depends on how you want to use this AGI, um, if it ever will arise, because the, the point is that we are not actually sure what an AGI is. Yeah, we have a kind of like. science fiction picture of yeah, it. Yeah, it's like, it's like we don't know what it is, but we'll know when we see it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and there will be systems that are superior to humans. There already are there on, 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 on topics, but they will not be superior in terms of understanding our culture, because that would require them to be 
and embed it so in what it is understanding well for humans understanding is that you have uh, 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 that's a kind of abstraction of the observations that you make and that you can abstract away and apply this to other situations so you know oh, I've seen this before so this is this is a typical behavior of a podcast for instance there's an abstraction there's somebody who's interviewing and somebody who's answering uh, the questions that that's an abstraction that's very simple of course but that's that's understand I understand what a podcast entails and there are many ways of understanding this, uh, but this is one way of understanding it, and that's something that humans can do. So how 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 did like Einstein come up with like from if when you when you come up with an explanation of something, right? It's like oh okay okay so there's a, here are some things that I observe. Yeah, and here is a way that this could happen. Like for example, I asked GPT, can you? Come up with a the- generate a theory that would unify uh, <laughs> yeah. quantum mechanics in general. Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> right? I was like, Still. you could share it with yet yeah. with GPT. <laughs> so, but like, like, uh, and all it did was tell me what other people have told I have tried to do. Yeah. Right? You would you would assume that an AGI would try to come up with an answer that's like, okay, well, or be like, I don't know, I don't know anything about physics. <laughs> <laughs> right then then you'd be like aha ah. <laughs> this thing is intelligent yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know even the fact that it doesn't know what it's about to do you yep. would say ah there it is we found it AGI <laughs> I would not be confused <laughs> <laughs> so why do we so like how do we stop pushing this goalpost it's like what do we agree upon like I don't know what's going to happen, man. I'm pretty, I'm honestly, I'm pretty excited. Like, I'm pretty curious, excited for the next 10, 20 years. Oh, me too. But I also was, was that 10 years ago. Uh-huh. So I'm always excited. Yeah, so. Yeah, nice. But uh, so I think it's a great times in terms, of course, I see the dangers, but I also see the enormous potential. And I think the interesting discovery with these uh, larger language models is, and I didn't anticipate that, that they are able, capable of doing more than you would expect. So in other words, there's more in language. So if you go back to the, the non-image uh, versions of GPT, there's more information in language than we thought because you can use that language without any knowledge of the world to come up with very convincing answers, mm. although, they, although they're not true. Uh, and that's interesting. I think from a cognitive science perspective, it's interesting, and it's interesting from an AI perspective. And um, and the same could happen for vision. That is more in vision that um, can be extracted in a non-biological way. Because if you train these systems on, on static images, and of course, we could move to the situation, and it will happen, that we also feed these systems with videos. And then passively viewing uh, dynamic information leaves cats blind. So that's this famous experiment. Uh, so that's also true. We need to actively involve, integra- interact with the world to, to get human-like vision. So then uh, it would be a surprise, but I cannot rule that out, that passively viewing videos could also help these systems to appreciate our world a bit more. Do you think they can derive the laws of physics by just video? And yeah, maybe. maybe that, would be, that would be an interesting question. Can, it in, in, can, you, uh, can this system infer physics from videos? And of course, the problem is that it will generate text as if it understands these things, and sometimes it might be right. But to really understand it, uh, that's that's a, that's a thing where we have our frontal cortex for, and where we have this educational system. That makes actually a huge difference in in evolutionary perspective. Um, so that would be a very interesting. And that's the holy grail. Uh, if they talk about AGI, this is the holy grail. 
get getting to this uh, reasoning ability and I, I, I they did some try tried out some uh, experiments with the neural Turing machine but this was a kind of strange attempt to combine deep learning with with a real computer but I think something like that is necessary kind of breakthrough in terms of developing that yeah I mean even in humans we can't really explain how we come up with explanations and ideas for things right like it's kind of hard how do we know like we don't know like no you know, some you know, like I I struggle I struggle with writing a piece of code every day, and I'm like I have no idea how this works. <laughs> I go to sleep the next day, I wake up, I'm like, oh wait, no, it's completely yeah. obvious. Like, what, what's wrong with this? Yeah. Thing? So my 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 kind of idea about that is that our brain is a massively parallel distributed computing system, in terms of computers. Of course, it's neural, but um, and we only have a limited number of actions we can take. Uh, and of course, our brain could compute millions of actions, but you only so our real bottleneck is in the actions, the things that we can do. And um, sometimes I have the feeling that what we call consciousness is a kind of editorial office that collects a nice story of why we do things to explain it to ourselves, right. yeah, <laughs> which yeah, yeah. has some evolutionary action. That doesn't ex uh, explain qualia, the experience of things, but it explains a bit our awareness of the. And so when we have to explain our our actions and. If you're coding, that's a highly optimized thing and you have these routines and your brain while you're sleeping is still processing all this information. And uh, it's also my experience that I, that's another advice I give to students when they get stuck in, in computing, just sleep over yeah, it. And then the next day, sleep. Yeah, yeah, sure. I do it with the Nobel Prize. I want to have this Nobel Prize winning <laughs> idea. So I, I sleep a lot in the hope that next day it will pop up. Until now, I was not successful. Would, I keep what, on trying. What do you think a Nobel Prize in AI would look like? Would, well, that would, would be the Turing would, word, but uh, I don't know. Oh, the, no, no, no. What <laughs> I mean is like, what would like what would have to happen? Like AGI would be happening. After. I think deep learning would would earn would a Nobel Prize, and uh, actually the Turing Award is a kind of you could say a Nobel, Nobel, Nobel Prize for uh, computer science. So I think uh, no, I'm not. I'm always joking about these Nobel Prizes <laughs> just because people are so fixated on it. But I think that would be um, or. Uh, or a breakthrough in physics. That's where you get a Nobel Prize or a peace plan. If you make please, yeah, peace in the Ukraine. Um, man, like, um, do you think we need new discoveries in physics to make AGI possible? Or is, uh, do you think we know enough already that like, it'll happen without new breakthroughs? Yeah, well, I don't know. But uh, I think we know a lot, but we still don't understand how these transformers work, how these deep learning networks actually work. Well, of course, this over-parameterization, there are all kinds of interdisciplinary approaches trying to understand how and why it works. So I think physics can contribute there, but also other uh, disciplines. Also, maybe maybe humans shouldn't be the benchmark. Maybe they, like. <laughs> no, that's another question. So uh, that's all the standard argument with flying that uh, airplanes don't have flapping wings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, no, I'm not saying it's the only example of. Uh, if we talk about intelligence, and this is maybe a misnomer, but artificial intelligence, yeah, intelligence is a thing we associate with humans. So uh, that's the only example we have. But it, I'm not saying it's the best example. Actually, I can show and prove that it's not the best example of intelligence. Just read the papers. Yeah. But um, so you could also imagine that we built an AGI that is much smarter than humans and is really helpful for society. You would be, okay. I feel like when you create an AGI, I feel like we might not be able to understand it. Like it'll be so alien to us. It might as well be an alien. It's like... What is this thing? 
Like yeah. how? Like why no, it... I think then it would be a subject of study. So yeah. you have AGI studies. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, children yeah. will study AGI. Like he's one AGI <laughs> and like, and like, trying and to decipher this article. What the hell these things trying to tell us? But I think these things are not totally opaque. There is something you you can dis disassemble them. And uh, so one initiative now with these language models is to try to to build something that keeps track of the things that went into them. So you can always identify if a certain picture or text was used to train the system, which is, of course, also important for evaluation. Because it might be that some of the answers they give are just copied, compressed and then decompressed and copied. So I think um, we're, we're in an in a early phase of developing of these models. And rather than talking or thinking about AGI, I would rather think about the things we already have and how they will develop in the coming 20 years. Because I think AGI is much further away it's not something around the corner yeah of like, course you have these stories that you can connect uh, gpt to the web and it could make actions there but i think yeah that's that's not what agi is yeah and i'm um i don't think you can just get there from training from data and then building an inference machine no i agree i think, I think there's something 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 more needs to happen yeah that's for sure nice all right that's it hour and a half Thank, Thank you so you. much for uh, sitting down today. It was a pleasure. It was an awesome conversation. And uh, <laughs> we, didn't get any, <laughs> we didn't get anywhere close to vision. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> we didn't get anywhere close to vision. Like <laughs> we touched upon it. We touched but upon I, it. I, I suspect it's your trick. It's on purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get a follow-up podcast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll come up with some more. Cause I just want to no. talk about interesting stuff. So I was like, oh, that's pretty, pretty Yeah, it's great. It's great. Thank All right. You. Thanks for joining me again. And uh, see you later. This has been a One Deeper Podcast. Thanks for joining, and I hope you learned something. Catch you again next time.